The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, welcome to day two of our special coverage from the COP26 conference. We are, of course, live from Glasgow and the London studio with Jeff Cutmore as well. And these are your headlines. So over 100 world leaders join a deforestation pledge in the first big move of COP26, with the US, China and crucially Brazil all taking part. And America's climate envoy, John Kerry, tells CNBC he's optimistic about the negotiations. I was very encouraged by uh, some of the comments earlier today. I think people are certainly talking urgently. Let's see what happens in the next days. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi vows to take his country to net zero by 2070 in a dramatic turnaround, marking one of the first major pledges from the COP meeting. By 2030, India will reduce the carbon intensity of its economy by 45%. By 2070, India will achieve the target of net zero emissions. Standard Chartered pre-tax profits double in the third quarter, beating expectations as bad loans shrink and its key emerging markets begin to recover from the pandemic. The CFO, Andy Holford, will join us in just a few minutes. And Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen tells the Web Summit in Lisbon that Mark Zuckerberg should walk away from the company he founded. I think it is unlikely the company will change if he remains the CEO. I hope that he can see that there's so much good he could do in the world and maybe it's a chance for someone else to maybe take that. What is it, day 22 of COP? <laughs> feels like it that. does, doesn't it? My goodness me. Oof. Yeah, can't do many of those 16 nowadays, but uh, it is absolutely extraordinary here. The, uh, the world leaders are here, of course. There's a lot of very big speeches, but the question is, are they going to deliver? And I think that's what all our viewers want to know. Well, political leaders from around the world have vowed to take urgent climate action as COP26 kicked off only yesterday in Glasgow with developing nations such as Brazil and India promising to make new commitments on cutting CO2 emissions. But the pressure is now being ramped up on the major developed nations to do more to help emerging economies. In another major environmental breakthrough, over 100 leaders pledged to end and reverse all deforestation by 2030. There's a lot to unpack in that. We'll do that over the next uh, couple of hours. The agreement is set to be signed later today, but crucially with Brazil, amongst the signatories. Now, the point here is that Jair Bolsonaro is not even here. But if Brazil, of course, which has part of the world's lungs, uh, as Boris Johnson put it yesterday, in the Amazon rainforest, is a signatory, it's potentially significant. It isn't significant necessarily because, as you all know out there, and on our viewers, I think you're all professional skeptics, I hope you are, there was a 2014 deal and it failed, as we know, to do anything to stop deforestation. So let's just see whether there's any teeth in this deal that gets announced today. The US climate special envoy, though, John Kerry, told me yesterday he remains confident the talks would be a success. Obviously, we all came here to make progress. Um, I have high hopes. I was very 
encouraged by uh, some of the comments earlier today. I think people are certainly talking urgently. Let's see what happens in the next days. Now, in one of the first full day's major announcements, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi outlined a series of carbon cutting commitments for the coming decades, with the goal of India reaching net zero by 2070. Firstly, India will increase its non-fossil energy capacity to 500 gigawatts by 2030. Secondly, India will fulfill 50% of its energy requirements from renewable energy sources by 2030. Thirdly, between now and 2030, India will reduce its total projected carbon emissions by 1 billion tonnes. Fourthly, by 2030, India will reduce the carbon intensity of its economy by 45%. And fifthly, by 2070, India will achieve the target of net zero emissions. Right, I spoke with the Prime Minister of Sweden, Stefan Löfven, and asked him about his expectations for the negotiations. I need to be optimistic, but it will take uh, uh, hard work to, to achieve what we need to achieve. But everybody knows we need to stick to 1.5 degrees. That's what we need to do. And does everybody know that, sir? Because some nations don't seem willing to update their NDCs. Well, everybody should. I mean, look look around us. What's happening? UK. Uh, to yesterday, today, we see in Sweden, we see it all over the world. So there's no question what we need to do and make sure now that we that we can achieve what we want with the climate financing, but also the, the rules, Article Six. And, and that's the question, sir. Is it the financing that's the biggest sticking point going from the developed world to the emerging nations? It is important, uh, but it, it's not only that. But of course, for us, more wealthier nations, to show that we we can and we want to contribute. So that less wealthy nations can all do the same. But we've same. been underwhelming so far, so 80 billion isn't I know, I know, I know. I said it in New York weeks ago that we, it's, it's up to do the math, do the math how much we need to continue. We've doubled our now, so uh, I think more nations should do what they want. That's an answer. Thank you. Right, I also managed to catch up with the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, and asked him what role individual countries could play in combating climate change. Greece uh, is, uh, is part of the European Union, so we've set uh, ambitious uh, goals in terms of reducing our greenhouse gases by 55% by 2030 and becoming climate neutral by 2050. And we'll be passing our first climate law, hopefully before the end of the year to make sure that uh, all this is also properly legislated. But one thing you and I know is that there are other crises out there, whether it be COVID, whether it be the crisis that you and I uh, have talked about in Syntagma Square yeah. so many years ago mm -hmm. as well. Is this the most preeminent crisis of all of them at the moment? Now, there's no doubt that this is uh, an existential crisis for the whole planet and of course uh, for countries that are in the eastern Mediterranean. We saw what happened this summer with the horrible wildfires. Uh, so we know we need to, we know we need to act. Uh, we need to act both uh, on the mitigation uh, and on the adaptation uh, side. We will be faced with natural catastrophes in the foreseeable future. That's why we created a, a ministry um, of climate crisis and civil protection to make sure that we're better protected when the next uh, natural uh, disaster um, uh, strikes us. At the same time, we need to look into the future. Uh, Greece can play a, a leading role on uh, various fronts. Look at shipping, for example. Yeah. We control 20% of uh, global shipping. I want our ship owners to be uh, in the front line of uh, innovation surrounding shipping. We don't know what the solution will be, but we need to invest in alternative technologies uh, now. 
we need to protect our islands. There's uh, such unique um, habitats and we have a vision of making sure that our islands become carbon neutral before the mainland. We have the capacity of doing that, especially with the smaller islands that don't require much energy consumption. Uh, we're looking at um, uh, turning Greece into a regional energy hub. Look at, for example, what's happening uh, uh, in, um, in the Middle East uh, and in North Africa. We can produce very cheap electricity from the sun, but it needs to be transported uh, um, uh, to Europe somehow. That is why we are going to construct an electricity interconnection with Egypt. I just want to just very say very briefly that last time I spoke to Mr. Mitsotakis in Athens, we were on a balcony in Syntagma Square with the crisis going on around us, with the tear gas in the square. And I just want to make the point that if, in case our viewers think we've just gone DEFCON COP and DEFCON climate, there are other crises out there. And if the Greek debt crisis and the subsequent Greek debt load and the immigration crisis aren't a couple of examples of that and how it fits in with the broader picture, we're very cognizant of that. Hence my questioning there to the Greek Prime Minister. Uh, join us, though, at 1300 CET as we bring you the US President Joe Biden's speech at the COP summit. Uh, that will be live on CNBC. And also stay tuned because I will be uh, hosting a panel at 1345 CET with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, as well as UN Climate Ambassador Mark Carney on how the climate shift offers the opportunity of a generation. Standard Chartered pre-tax profits have uh, nearly doubled in the third quarter to just under $1 billion. That was ahead of expectations. The bank saw gains from lower impairment charges as well as recovery in pandemic-hit emerging markets. The results come just days after the bank pledged $300 billion over the next decade towards green and energy transition financing. Really good to catch up with Andy Halford, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Andy, good morning to you and thanks for coming to us. Um, just looking at the market reaction this morning, it seems that um, a little bit cool, given perhaps that the guidance in the statement suggested you won't be able to return to previous guidance until uh, full year 2022. Why the caution? Well, we, we've been very pleased, actually, with the recent results. So we have returned to growth on the top line, which is the first time for several quarters and we've had a significant over 50% increase in the profits. And actually, we have reiterated our outlook that next year we should be somewhere between 5 and 7% growth in income. Um, so overall, actually, we're really pleased with the results. And the market clearly will take its own view. And I, I guess it wants to see the numbers actually play out over a period of time. But we think it's been a good quarter and a very good platform as we move forwards. And hopefully the impacts of COVID start to uh, reduce over coming quarters. It'd be churlish to say um, that the underlying trends have not been strong here. And uh, the, the credit impairment uh, message also seems very positive. Um, you did... Uh reveal, I think, this uh, China property exposure of $4.2 billion. I wonder if that's part of the story of, of limited visibility and perhaps some of the caution. We don't know what's going to happen to the pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen to the Chinese property story. I, I, I agree. If one wants to be nervous, there are enough unknowns out there to be a little bit nervous. But um, particularly with regard to the property, we've said today that our total uh, loan book is $300 billion. Um, 16 of that is to commercial real estate globally, and only four of that is actually in China. So as a proportion of total, it's very small. 
And secondly, it is behaving fine. So whilst we're obviously keeping an eye on it, um, we're not overly concerned by it. But I think if you step back, we're looking forward, we're saying the underlying client demand is strong. We have seen our loans and advances grow 7% year to date. And we think that is really key as we go forwards. Our trade activity, so financing businesses in their trade, is up about 13% on a year ago. So actually underneath the skin of this, as we work through some of the interest rate headwinds, which are now coming near to an end, um, we, we do actually feel very positive as we go into next year. Yeah, Andy, I just want to pick up on that. I'm just looking at your NIM at 1.23% as well. I'm sure like a lot of other bank CFOs, you're welcoming the rate rises that seem almost inevitable at some stage. I know a lot of banks have already tightened a lot of their lending rates in lieu of that as well. How dual-edged sword is it, though? And just sorry to re- reiterate the point, but you have got this loan book out there. A lot of people are, and I was speaking to Alison Rose about this last night from Nat West as well, have borrowed an awful lot of money at historically low levels and have never seen a rate rising cycle as well. Is it going to be a tsunami for a lot of businesses? Well, I think what we have seen over the last year is that actually the loan impairment situation has been a lot better than many people had had feared. Um, In a normal year, our loan impairments might be near a billion dollars. So far, nine months in, they're only $60 million. So actually, they are very, very low. Now, absolutely to your point, a lot of that must be to do with the fact that with low interest rates, businesses can afford them. Uh, For banks generally, with higher interest rates, it is a better market to operate in, but not if it's a sharp increase, because that will just create problems for clients and will create more of the credit impairment issues. So a gentle increase in, um, in interest rates would be ideal, both we think for our clients, actually for us as well. And it looks at the moment as if that is the way things are likely to pan out. Uh, and Andy, I'm at COP26 in Glasgow as well. I think the financial community, under the guidance of the likes of Mark Carney, are trying to get ahead of governments, regardless of what is decided on a sovereign nation basis here in Glasgow as well. Does the financial community need firmer rules and uh, 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 benchmarks from the likes of COP26, or can it just move forward uh, without the guidance from com- governments, i.e. can companies uh, and individual businesses, and especially the financial community, can they just go on regardless? I think that um, financial institutions need to take as much of a lead as they can do. They, they can't sit and wait for infinite guidance and total clarity. Um, we have said you know, that we will be going for 2050 as the net zero year, despite the fact that the majority of the countries in which we operate either have not got a commitment to that date or have got a commitment to a date that is later than that. Um, so notwithstanding that, we have said, no, we will do what we can do with our clients to make 2050 a reality. We're not going to wait for others to set the rules. We are going to set about seeking to do that as best as we can do now. So I think the simple answer is no. I think everybody needs to get on and play their part in this as early as they can and not wait for the whole of the jigsaw puzzle to totally fit into place. Andy, always good to catch up. Thanks for giving us your time this morning. Anna Halford, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Uh, let's uh, move on. We need to tell you about the uh, summit that's going on in Lisbon. This is the Web Summit. Karen Cho is there for us. We'll catch up with her a little bit later on in the programme. But overnight, they heard there from the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen. Uh, you can hear what she had to say 
when we come back. Stay with us. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. So let's take a moment to walk you through the overnight market action here. And I think just worth pointing out as we started the fresh month of November, fresh momentum in these uh, U.S. equity markets. And again, we pushed forward to fresh uh, record closes as far as the S&P is concerned here uh, and the Dow. Uh, So that's um, a new record as far as uh, we sit on these uh, indices for November. Probably also worth pointing out to you uh, that the small caps had a very good day yesterday, which um, could be an omen of, of the market effectively deciding that this economy can weather tapering and interest rate rises. And of course, the expectation is that we are going to get some kind of announcement tomorrow from the Federal Reserve around its tapering timetable, what size, what scope, what timeline we're looking at here ultimately. But the important thing to know is the small caps actually had their best day since August. So that was strong, even as we saw the headline indices do well. The Nasdaq, uh, as you can see, up six-tenths of one percent here. Strong performance. We should show you Tesla. Uh, There was some some news around uh, Tesla uh, beyond the fact, of course, that we had this very strong push up eight and a half percent here. And it On the face of it, it didn't seem like a huge story, but ultimately Tesla has announced that it is going to make its superchargers available on a trial basis in the Netherlands to other car manufacturers. Now, you could look at that and say, well, that that seems like a very generous act on Tesla's part. And of course, yes, it does, because it means if you drive a a BMW or an Audi electric, you can also plug into their superchargers. But it also shows you that Tesla is doing some of the basic work to try and encourage the ubiquity of electric vehicles. And by doing this, it's only a trial at this stage in the Netherlands. I think it's 10 charging stations. It indicates, I think, how Tesla is trying to help the broader market open up, not just its own particular segment in the market. And that's a A very interesting economic theory based on how do you make your slice of the pie bigger. Sometimes it's better just to make the pie bigger rather than fight with other people over their slice of the pie. Let's have a look at the uh, Treasury market then. Um, This is uh, where we sit currently on the Treasury curve. We're 1.55 here on the 10-year note. And to be honest, I think there's a little bit of becalming coming into the Fed meeting going on. We've had that synchronized move at the short end of the curve globally, as I think markets have tried to move to reprice interest rate expectations. Let's see whether the central banks actually deliver here, because I think increasingly there are economists who are becoming nervous that some of the data points are rolling over. The things like the city surprise index isn't looking as exciting as it was several months ago. And will that just stay the hand 
of the central banks when it ultimately comes to pulling the trigger here. It was interesting what we heard from uh, Lowe over at the RBA, where they talked about looking through some of the inflation pressure. And ultimately, we wouldn't be seeing a rise in the cash rate until 2023. That was the suggestion from the Australian central bank. Quick look at the uh, the greenback. We know that the dollar has been uh, pretty much in the driving seat of late. But um, you've got a, a little bit of a mixed bag here with the euro uh, off against the greenback, sterling uh, down against the greenback. The dollar, though, a little bit weaker against the yen here. And uh, let me just step away and you can just see some movement here on the dollar yuan. And again, um, there are an awful lot of zeros in here before we actually get to the number of the movement, which again indicates that maybe markets are just sitting back a little bit and waiting to see what happens around these interest rate stories. Opening calls, well, let's do Asia first, and then I'll show you the opening calls, because we talked earlier to Andy Halford at Standard Chartered. Flat, really not a great deal of movement. And as he pointed out, there are some good signs that they've got growth in those numbers, but the market may be not as impressed with the, uh, uh, the statement, the guidance that they gave uh, on full year uh, 2022 here. Whatever the reasons, we are just a little bit easier across the, um, the Asian session at the moment with the Shanghai market down 1.7%. What does that mean for Europe? Well, it looks like uh, as far as the spread betters are concerned, they are looking for us to have a weaker start to the trading session this morning. But there's an awful lot of ground to cover until we get to these opens. So we'll talk some more about how sentiment may be shifting before we start the trading session. Of course, we will be getting some big numbers uh, a little later on from BP, which could also be important to FTSE 100 direction. The annual Tech Conference Web Summit is back with its first in-person event since the coronavirus pandemic. Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen kicked things off last night with some strong words for her former employer, Mark Zuckerberg. Karen is at the Web Summit in Lisbon. Uh, Karen, good to see you. Um, so Frances Haugen then, what a terrific start to this Web Summit with controversy from the first minute. Exactly, Jeff. I mean, we missed Web Summit last year with coronavirus, but very much back and forth this year. And we'd all watched uh, Francis Haugen in the recent weeks, and there was testimony in the United States before lawmakers and outing recently before UK parliamentarians. I think most of us wondered what more Haugen could say against the company that she used to work for. And don't forget, there's been thousands of documents also released to the media that uh, has produced uh, much debate, but effectively calling out Facebook for prioritizing profit over public good. What we heard at the opening ceremony here at Web Summit was a step further as Haugen called on Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg to step aside, saying his user safety would be better placed in the hands of somebody else that could refocus the company, but also criticised that recent decision to rebrand and uh, Facebook rebranding to become Meta and invest in the, the metaverse. Uh, Haugen called out that investment instead of doubling down on the investment in the platform to tackle these issues that have been going on for many, many years. Let's take a listen to what Haugen said on uh, center stage here. Mark holds 54% of the voting shares of Facebook. He is the chairman and the CEO. And I think at a minimum, the shareholders have the right to actually choose their CEO. And so uh, I, I think it is unlikely the company will change if he remains the CEO. Um, 
And I, 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 I hope that he can see that there's so much good he could do in the world. And maybe it's a chance for someone else to maybe take the reins. I think Facebook would be stronger with someone who was willing to focus on safety. So, yes. Facebook has responded. A spokesperson for Meta has said that the argument that we deliberately push content that makes people angry for profit is deeply illogical and they're on track to spend about $5 billion on safety and security in 2021. But let's just dig into those numbers a little bit further. This is a company that just the other week posted a revenue of $29 billion for the quarter also pledging to spend $10 billion over the next year in the metaverse. So effectively, it's found the money to invest in a very different area of the company, but not in these ongoing issues that had dogged the company for many, many years. And that was one of the criticisms of Haugen, that the company continues to prioritize that investment over tackling existing issues. I spoke to Paddy Cosgrave, who's the founder and the CEO of Web Summit. He also was a little bit puzzled about where Mark Zuckerberg wants to take the company into the metaverse with avatars interacting. Uh, he was saying hopefully that the company will shed some light a little bit later on this week on what exactly that plan is. But he also said it's unlikely that Facebook will bring about major change. In fact, that change is going to be driven by regulators and in fact likened it to the rules of the road where you need to issue licenses and fines, penalties. Let's take a listen to what Cosgrave had to say. For several years, uh, you know, a lot of uh, well-placed uh, thinkers, former Facebook employees were saying, look, we think there's a problem. And everybody was feeling maybe there was a problem. This is the first time I think there is quite hard evidence that there is very clear problems and Facebook is aware of them. Do I think anything's going to happen? I don't think that's down to Facebook. I think that's down to regulators around the world uh, deciding new rules for the new age that we live in. And until they start making decisions, I don't really think you can expect these private companies, uh, in the case of Facebook or any others, uh, to fundamentally change how they do business. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.